So if you will, read along with me as we read Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 23. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But... Seeing the wind, he became frightened. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we've been reminded of this morning as we have sung, as we've read scripture together already, that you are an awesome God, that you are great, that you are worthy to be praised. Father, this morning as our attention is drawn to this narrative, help us to understand what it is that you desire us to understand about the person and the work of Christ and of his ministry as he points and displays the glory of the Father. May our hearts be encouraged as we look to the source of all salvation. May we be comforted in times of testing and trial as we are reminded this morning of the help that is so readily offered and available. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's recall briefly the setting leading up to our text this morning. Jesus has retreated from Galilee, not out of fear, but upon learning of Herod's interest in him, something more of a morbid curiosity at this point. The crowds have rushed to follow him so fast that they left behind all thought of food and other provisions as they rushed to meet him as he sailed across to the eastern edge of the Sea of Galilee. Upon his arrival, the crowds having beaten him on foot, Jesus looks upon them with great compassion. And he begins to heal not just some, but all who were sick amongst them, all who were needy. We learn from the other Gospels that he was teaching them that day. This was a setting similar to that of the Sermon on the Mount, according to some of the other Gospels, as he sat there and began to teach his disciples and the crowds. As late afternoon began to approach, the disciples desiring to send them away because they didn't have the food, Jesus said, don't send them away. 
Instead, he performed the miracle of feeding around 5,000 men plus women, wives, and children. Well, now we come to evening. It's fast approaching. The focus shifts. The crowds are removed from the scene and the attention moves to Jesus and his disciples. Verses 22 through 23, this section provides us with four scenes or movements, each of which are going to reveal important information about Jesus and the life of discipleship. It's helpful in that it prepares us for times of testing and reminds us in some vivid ways that Jesus is the Savior. It anticipates the work on the cross. It looks back in history at all of the promises of the Old Testament that God is a God who is near and a God who saves. Well, the first scene, in this first scene, Jesus moves to the mountain, verses 22 through 23. There's an urgency in this account of Matthew. He uses the term immediately three times in this section. And this comment, this is common in Mark. Mark uses the term immediately over and over again, almost leaving you breathless as you read the narrative, feeling like you're racing to keep up with Jesus, the disciples, and the crowds. But for Matthew, this is much less common. And so we feel here this urgency that Matthew is creating around this setting and this scene. And Jesus doesn't gently suggest that disciples take the boat. We read, he made the disciples get into the boat. And this is as strong as it sounds. The disciples are reluctant to be separated from Christ. They must be compelled. They're being compelled to get into the boat. Jesus is ordering them, despite their desire, go get in the boat. You see, the disciples don't understand why they must be separated. They don't understand that Christ intends to test their faith that evening. They don't understand that Jesus wants to see if they have learned from the events of the day. That if the feeding of the people, which illustrated that he is the provider, that he is the source of life, that he is God incarnate, if they have learned this lesson, that he is the bread of life, the source of all spiritual and physical provision. Most importantly, they do not realize that this these events that are about to follow, this separation from Christ, is going to be essential for their training as disciples. So Jesus compels them against their will to get into the boat. I wonder how many times in our life we ourselves have had to be compelled against our will, to be in a position or circumstance that is anything other than what we would have chosen to be in a situation or a circumstance that is against our will. Disciples must have been questioning the wisdom of Christ at this moment. Here he was sending them back into Galilean territory, back to the place where Herod ruled. Jesus was now on Herod's radar. I mean, was Jesus going to be safe? He's going to be traveling alone. Were they safe? They didn't have Jesus. What was he doing? Why was he forcing them to separate? Without the commissioning that he had done back in chapter 10, where he gave them very clear explanation for why he was sending them away. 
how quick we are to question the plan of God. I would surmise that left to our own devices, I doubt that any of us would ever enter situations where our faith would be tested. For this reason, God continues to work in this way. We are often compelled to go, compelled to leave what is comfortable, compelled to do that which is difficult, pushed into circumstances outside of our own making. And you understand that I'm leaving out the exceptions or what I'm not saying. I'm not talking about those times where we have sinfully led ourselves into times of difficulty that's merely a consequence. I'm not talking about that. But where we have done everything right, and yet still we are struggling, still we are suffering, still circumstances outside of our control are being thrust upon us, and we're being compelled to deal with it. For this reason, Solomon writes in Proverbs 16, verse 9, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. This, by the way, is also why we are told to not grumble and complain when things do not go our way. In this, we often grumble and complain against the plan of the Lord. You see, we are short-sighted. Unlike Jesus, who, as we've already read, is able to peer out across these miles of distance and sees those disciples struggling on the oars, our perspective is very short. Well, unlike the disciples earlier that day, Jesus did not intend to send away those crowds on empty stomachs. Just as he had healed all who were sick, he fed all who were hungry before sending them away, before providing for every spiritual and physical need. But you see, there was another reason, another cause for sending the people away and for his retreating to the mountain to pray. We find that in John's telling of this account. John tells us in John chapter 6, after he had fed the crowds and worked that miracle, after they had collected the 12 baskets that were remaining, The crowds began to say, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. There's a bit of an irony as well. Whereas the crowds had intended to come and take him by force to compel him, he then compels them and his disciples to leave. This, too, probably accounts for some of the urgency we see in Matthew's use of immediately. Once the disciples and crowds are dismissed, Jesus goes up to the mountain to pray. Now, I was curious as I looked at this text, I struggled over the fact that it says the mountain. It doesn't say a mountain. It didn't say the mountains. It says the mountain to pray. And yet, despite my searching, I couldn't find what specific mountain this was. We don't know exactly where Jesus went up. The Golan Heights and their mountain ranges were to the north, northeast. But that would have been quite a distance. Could have been a reference, though, to that range. I think that's one of those questions I'm going to ask in heaven is what mountain was this? However, what's significant and what is going to become important, as you'll see, is his going up to the mountain to pray, to commune with the Father. 
In this, we see again this allusion we've seen over and over again to the motif of a new and better Moses who ascended the mountain to commune with God, of the patriarchs who ascended the mountain to be near the Lord, who ascended the mountain to worship, to offer sacrifice to the Lord. This movement to the mountain is no accident. And while it indeed ties into the motif we have seen of Jesus as the new and better Moses, there's going to be something else, even more significant, I would say, that is at work here. And so as Jesus ascends to the mountain, the first scene closes and the second scene is set to open in verses 24 through 27. Prepares us for Jesus to walk on the waves. We don't know what was said between the Father and the Son in those hours that passed as Jesus was alone on the mountain praying. But evening and darkness fully set in. Then we read in the fourth and final watch of the night, Jesus peers through the darkness at the disciples in the boat. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus saw them straining against the oars. Matthew tells us they were battered by the waves and the wind, which were contrary. The disciples have actually made considerable headway at this point, despite the headwind and the battering they were taking from the storm. This long distance is literally many stadia. A stade is a measurement of approximately 200 yards. According to John's gospel, they were between 25 and 30 stadia from shore, which would have been, if my math serves me right, about three to three and a half miles off the coast. There's no mention of fear at this point, though they were straining against a storm. Perhaps they were less afraid of the storm this time because of Jesus' miracle over the wind and the waves previously in chapter 8. Now, night was measured from approximately 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And the Jews would divide this into three sections or four hours each called watches. The Romans also had the term watches, but they divided into four watches of three hours each. And it's this Roman reckoning of night that had become commonplace in first century Israel. It's what Matthew and the other gospel writers use as they describe the different watches. But why would Matthew add a reference to this time? If nothing is in Scripture is really superfluous, what is the significance? Why is he calling our attention to the fourth watch of the night? I think there's at least two reasons this timing is significant. The first goes to the state of the mind, state of mind of the disciples. They were exhausted. They had not slept. They had been rowing for six to nine hours. I mean, thankfully, there are several men, so they can row in shifts, but with this storm, there was no sleep. They had been up all day. And I realize we don't do a lot of rowing anymore. In fact, the rowing we think of is probably that calm, peaceful, serenic rowing in the movies where the man rows the boat on the peaceful pond while some fair lady holds an umbrella for shade. That's not what's going on here. I I don't like working out. I like the benefits that come from working out, but not the process. But we got a rower this year. And while I'm no, no triathlete, I like to think that I'm not in bad shape. First time I got on the rower, I thought, oh, this isn't so bad. I should have known better than to offer judgment after five seconds. Because at 30 seconds, it began to hit me that this was going to hurt. 
A couple minutes later, I was regretting this life decision. After five or six minutes, pride alone kept me going. There was no way my wife and kids were going to see me give up that quickly. Well, here are the disciples. Six to nine hours of rowing in a storm with wind and waves pushing back with every stroke. Even in that cool evening storm, you can imagine the sweat that was pouring out as they strained against the oars. If ever there was an illustration of the curse of Genesis 3 and working by the sweat of one's brow, this was it. Nature and creation were fighting their efforts. The wind and the waves were against them. They were mentally and physically exhausted. I don't know about you, but I am not at my strongest spiritually when I'm tired and worn out. And yet this is precisely the moment the Lord chooses to test their faith. If you desire to know what you really believe, if you want to see how you, is how obedient you are, look at how you respond when you are tired and worn out. How do you speak to others? How do you respond to adversity, great or small? This will highlight, perhaps better than any other time, those areas where your faith and obedience must grow. Thus, it's no accident that Jesus comes to these disciples in the fourth watch of the night. But there's a second reason this timing is significant and important. And it's because this is the time that is frequently associated with God's work of salvation. What do I mean by that? Well, this fourth watch, this 3 to 6 a.m. time frame, was called the morning watch. Because it welcomed the break of dawn. It marked the transition from night to morning. And it is a theologically significant time. In Exodus 14, 24, Israel's back is against the Red Sea. They've just left Egypt, plundering the Egyptians on their way out. And Pharaoh, snapping out of his momentary Delusion decides that he is going to bring back these slaves, these Israelites, sends his armies out against them. God stops them with a pillar of fire, and there we read in Exodus 14:24, "At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion." In Psalm 5, verse 3, we read, In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. Watch for what? For God's salvation, for his deliverance, for his answer to prayer. Psalm 46, 5, God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Psalm 90, verse 14. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness. That is, your faithful love, that Hebrew term, chesed. That we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. And do not miss the very name of Christ in Revelation twenty-two sixteen. 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angels to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The timing is theologically significant. Jesus arrived 
in the morning watch. The bright morning star arrives to save. Notice, too, from where he came. You see, these geographical details are significant. Just as there is no superfluous mention to the time, there is no superfluous mention to geography. As we noted last week, narrative has the unique advantage of making concrete those abstract truths about God and Christ. Those theological statements that we read are made concrete in these stories, in these illustrations of the life of Christ. And what do we read this morning for our scripture reading in Psalm 121? In Psalm 121.1, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. This was not accidental. Jesus was teaching his disciples, teaching us where to look in time of need, in time of trouble, and in time of distress. Where does our help come? It comes from on high. Jesus comes to the disciples from on high. He started on the mountain so that he might demonstrate the help and the salvation that comes from God in an unforgettable way. Earlier that day, the disciples had witnessed this help from above and the miracle of the bread and fish. What did Jesus do? Before he distributed the bread and the fish, what did he do? He lifted his eyes towards heaven, looking up. Blessing God. And Jesus now makes even more visible the source and the location of help from above as he descends from the mountain. During a powerful storm through the darkness, Jesus looks out at least three to three and a half miles. That would have been from the coast. We don't know how far away the mountain was from that. And peering through the darkness, sees the disciples struggling, so he comes down to save. At risk of drawing too close a comparison, I cannot help but be reminded that God looks down from heaven and we are never out of his sight. No matter what struggle or what difficulty we may encounter, God sees us and cares for us. Job 7, 17 through 18. What is man that you magnify him, that you are concerned about him? that you examine him every morning and try him every moment. What is very unique about the God of Israel, our God, what is so unique about him is that he looks down upon the affairs of man with care and concern. That term that is used for concern in Job 7.17 is the word visit. It can be translated as visit. It's got a range of meanings. But it implies the idea of coming near to care for someone. That's the concern that is expressed. This is unique from all of the other gods of the ancient Near East, all of the Greek and Roman gods, where God looks down with concern upon his creation. Not as a capricious God looking to meddle in man's affairs, to make man's life more difficult, but because he cares and he loves for us. In fact, that's the very reason that he tries us every moment. 
There's another significant motif at display, one that we'll only spend briefly mentioned this morning, but it's certainly important, especially at this moment. And part of the reason his appearing brought such fear upon the disciples. Have you ever wondered that? Why were they so afraid? Yes, it's not normal to see somebody walking on water. I get that. But why were they so afraid? Why did these grown men cry out in fear? Scripture frequently uses the sea as a metaphor for evil and wickedness. The sea itself is not evil, but its many parts become symbols for evil and unrest and wickedness. Isaiah 57, 20, for example, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. Revelation 13, 1, the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on the seven horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. There's many more examples, but by contrast, we see God's power illustrated by reference to his power over the sea. In Psalm 74, beginning of verse 12, Yet God is my king from of old, who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. You broke open springs and torrents. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Or Jeremiah, who says in Jeremiah 5, 22, Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I placed the sand as the boundary for the sea a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. Psalm 88, 89, 9. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And of particular importance for our text this morning, turning again to Job, we read in Job 9, verse 8, who alone stretches out the heavens, and walks upon the waves of the sea. In other words, this miracle, this walking upon water, is a visible expression of this continuous train of theology testifying to the great and awesome power of God. The Son of God, the Creator, has come down from the mountain and is treading upon the waves of the sea, just as Job described. And so how do the disciples respond? They cry out in terror. Unlike chapter 8, the fear is not because of the storm, but because of this apparition, this one who walks on the waves of the sea. And so it's a little wonder the disciples were terrified. Here's the very one about whom the ancient patriarch Job spoke, who walks on these waves of the sea, who treads them down. How then does Jesus respond? What words of comfort does he offer? Take courage. Do not be afraid. I am. Jesus makes a crystal clear claim to be God incarnate. Exodus 3, 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. 
This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Deuteronomy 32, 39, See now that I, I am He. There is no God besides me. It is I who put life, put to death, and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. There is no one who can deliver from my hand. Isaiah 41, 13, For I am the Lord your God, who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. The meaning and significance of these words would not have been lost on those disciples. Despite their exhaustion and sleep deprivation, they knew who was standing by their boat. And so the scene closes with Jesus comforting the disciples. The God of comfort has come down from on high. He has reached them in their distress. And yet there's one who must push the limits. There's always that one, isn't there? Jesus has spoken to them, identifying himself clearly, identifying himself as Yahweh. And yet Peter must test the veracity of this statement to confirm the claim of the one who treads upon the seas. You almost have to Respect the bravery, stupidity. So we reach the third scene. We might title it Peter's Faith Flounders, verses 28 through 31. Now, despite the ultimate outcome, Peter does have the sense to not order Christ or presume too far. He does say and ask Jesus to order him to climb out of the boat. He understands enough to know that the ability to walk on water is only going to come through the command of Christ. He must not act on his own, but waits for the word of the Lord. Jesus replies simply, come. So Peter climbs out of the boat. You have to wonder what it was like those first seconds. As his feet stands on the water that he has fished in all of his life. Swam, swam in all of his life. And he's on top of it. And so he takes tentative step after tentative step on his way to Christ. Now, Jesus was close enough to have a conversation over the wind and the waves. Makes sense that Jesus could be heard at any time, but the disciples were also able to converse. So it doesn't seem that Jesus is too far away. It would have only taken a few steps for, Jesus, for Peter to walk to Jesus. So he would have quickly been by Jesus' side. This, by the way, makes Peter's lack of faith all the more disturbing. He's almost certainly standing right next to Jesus before he begins to sink beneath the waves. Why does Peter begin to sink? It's not from some lack of buoyancy. He saw the wind and the waves and became frightened. Put simply, he has taken his eyes off of Jesus. Christ has not gone anywhere. But Peter has stopped looking at Christ and started paying attention to the wind and the waves. For good reason, Peter's sinking has served as an illustration over the centuries to believers about the danger of taking our eyes off of Christ. As one commentator noted, Peter's brief encounter with this faith failed once he felt the fury of the storm. Let me ask you this. At the moment 
of your last sin, of your failure in faith, what were you thinking about? Let me put it this way. I can tell you what you weren't thinking about. You were not thinking of Christ. I can guarantee you that you were not thinking of him. You were not looking at him. You see, the greatest deterrent there is for sin is to focus on Christ. Whatever your struggle, whether fear, anger, greed, lust, or pride, the answer is the same. Look to Christ. Study Him. Pray to Him. Remember Him. Well, Peter certainly is a poor example of looking away as he sinks beneath the waves, but he also is a good example. It's a good example of what repentance looks like. Despite taking his eyes off Christ, as he begins to sink beneath the way, he responds in exactly the right way. When he begins to sink beneath the way, waves, what does he do? He turns his eyes back to Christ and cries out, Lord, save me. He turns his eyes to the only source of salvation, to Jesus Christ, crying out to be saved, to be rescued. And Christ responded, as he always does, to sincere cries of salvation. There is none who cries out to the Lord who he will turn away. From the moment of salvation, when you recognize your sin and your need to repent, submit to the Lordship of Christ, confessing your sins and saying, Lord, you alone are my only hope. Lord, save me. To what each of us who have already done that need to do each and every day when we sin, which is turn our eyes back to Christ and say, Lord, save me. Forgive me. And we know that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to save us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ stretched out his hand, saved Peter, taking hold of him. As David writes in 2 Samuel twenty-two seventeen. he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. Christ becomes the vivid illustration of all that the prophets hoped for. The one who rescues, the one who lifts us up, the one who comes down from on high. Everything that was hoped for in the Messiah of the Old Testament is found in Jesus Christ. This Jesus came down from the mountain. He treaded upon the waves and he drew Peter out of the waters. The character of God is revealed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it's revealed so that we might have hope and assurance in the saving power of God. Both from our sin as well as the trials of this life. Before getting back into the boat, Jesus rebukes Peter. Jesus' rebuke is short but firm. He looks at Peter, and it would have sounded a little like this. Little faith, why did you doubt? Notice Peter has no response. There is no reason. There is no explanation. There is no excuse to offer that would make sense in the presence of the creator of the world, the one who treads on the water on why you doubted. There's no excuse for us. 
Things may be hard, they may be difficult, they may be overwhelming, but there is no excuse for doubting. This is the same God who asks us to trust him. This is why James writes, Consider it all joy, my brethren, whenever you face trials of many various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And you have to wonder if he has Peter in mind at this point. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously without reproach and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting. Why? Because the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Well, Jesus' question is left hanging in the air as this third scene closes. The question itself is a reminder to all the disciples to trust in the Lord, that there is no excuse for not trusting in the Lord. The fourth and final scene pans to Jesus and Peter climbing into the boat. And the moment Jesus steps into the boat, the storm stops. Here in this scene, the Creator calms the sea in these final two verses. We encounter another of the divine passives. As they get into the boat, Matthew simply states, the wind stopped without reference to who stopped it. And yet the response of the disciples shows that they clearly recognize there was no doubt about who it was that caused the storm to cease. They worshipped him. The one who came down from the mountain, the great I am, the maker of heaven and earth, calmed the wind and the waves. Mark tells us that their astonishment was on account of their having not yet learned the significance of the loaves from earlier that day. Now, what does that mean? It was the reminder, it was the truth, it was the significance that Jesus is the bread of life. What does that mean? That he provides everything that is necessary for life and godliness. That all of creation is sustained by him. All of our spiritual health is found in him. That the source of salvation is God incarnate. Now, however, it is unavoidable, so they declare, you are certainly God's son. On the surface, all the disciples failed the test. Peter, spectacularly so. And yet their final response shows that all has not been lost on them. Yes, their faith is small, but it is growing. And this trial afforded an opportunity for Christ to reveal himself to them in unforgettable ways. To teach them that the source of all comfort and salvation is in Christ alone. And is there any of us to whom this does not apply? Has our faith really reached a level of maturity where we do not need to grow further? Do any of us, can any of us say we have enough faith? Are any of us able to follow Jesus' instructions through Paul in Philippians 4, 6 through 7 perfectly? Where he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer 
and thanksgiving and supplication. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peter learned a valuable lesson that day that enabled him to encourage later believers. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up as I read 1 Peter 1, 6-7. Peter writes saying, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of the words to the hymn, Turn Your Eyes on Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Then the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder this morning through this miraculous walking upon the waves, this demonstration of the power of God through Christ, that he is the creator, the sustainer of life, that he is the one about whom the prophets spoke, that all salvation is found in him. Father, help us in our daily lives to turn our eyes and to fix our eyes upon Jesus. And as we behold him, may we, may we sin less simply because our love for our Savior grows as we look into the radiance and the beauty of Christ. We thank you for reminders like we have this morning. We thank you for the example of the disciples. We thank you for the example of Peter. That you would provide a man, a young man at the time, so bold, almost arrogantly so, who would teach us where we often struggle. Father, we presume far more than Peter ever did, and yet you are patient and forbearing. We're reminded that your mercies are new every morning. May we call to you every morning as the dawn comes, knowing that from there our salvation is found. In your name, amen.